Wood for the San Francisco Ballet, and I'm delighted to welcome you here to the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco to welcome you to this evening's Points of View program. This is Wednesday, February 24th, and it's 2016. As many of you, of course, know, these are often recorded, and you can find the recordings as podcasts on the San Francisco Ballet website, sfballet.org. So a welcome to anyone who may be listening in the future to a podcast. Many of you are aware that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a favorite part of these evenings is for you to be able to ask your own questions of our guests. And if you are new to our situation here, many of you are very used to this by now, but um, we do have a standing mic at the foot of the center aisle. So think of your questions. And then in the last 10 minutes or so of our time, um, think about how you're going to make your way to the center aisle so that you can ask those questions. And it really helps us if you ask them into the mic. Your way <laughs> yes. And if you follow Ruben's lead, you'll float <laughs> or swim. Um, I do want to uh, call your attention to a few other of the um, exploring ballet, engaging audiences, um, programming throughout the rest of the season. Uh, talk about ballet, seeing ballet, um, coming to the points of view programs, coming to the meet the artist interviews that are held an hour before the um, Friday evenings and Sunday matinees. All of this is in a brochure that you can find out in the lobby. And speaking of the lobby, as um, you, I don't know whether there are tickets left for this evening's performance, but if you do not hold a ticket and really think you want to stay, it might be worth going out to the box office and checking to see if there's a spare seat somewhere for you. It's been a great run, and it's coming to an end, so you don't want to miss this chance. Uh, I do, at this point, think I should introduce the folks with whom I will be in conversation. So I'm going to start with, on my right, Sasha DeSola. Hello, everyone. Sasha is uh, a soloist with the company, joined the company as an apprentice in 2006, uh, promoted to the Corps the next year, and then promoted to soloist in 2012, as I understand it. And uh, we see her in all the solo parts. It will be fun to hear your reflections on past and present Swan Lakes. And then on my far right, Ruben Martin Sintas, who um, almost... Welcome, everybody. Almost needs no introduction. Um, Ruben joined the company in 2000, actually went up the ladder from core to soloist, Appointed principal in, um, in my notes somewhere here. When were you appointed a principal? Um, 2006? Yes, 2006. And then... Um, I'm glad I still remember. And then made the transition from being a principal dancer to being a principal character dancer, which will be very interesting to hear a little bit about. And Ruben also works as a teacher in the school. So all of that is 
um, the, the exciting arc of a career. So You just keep adding titles as you go up the ladder. So that's <laughs> as fun. you can see, Ruben's title takes up the entire screen. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, this evening, the conversation is going to be about the Ballet Swan Lake, in particular this production, but it's um, a pretty big event in the life of any ballet company and in the ballet world, so there's a lot to, to be mined and to be said. I thought, um, as always, your program notes <clears throat> are excellent. I hope you will be reading them. Um, lots of history, lots of interesting information about the current production. But um, maybe I can just say a little bit, the highlights, the history, and I think I have some visual aids. Um, this particular production, as you see, um, choreography by Helgi with the traditional choreography after Marius Petipa and Levi Vanoff, mostly most important for this production, the costume design by Jonathan Fensom, lighting design by Jennifer Tipton, and production and video design, which of course is new for this production. Um, we will come back to some of that. Um, so Swan Lake was first presented, not here, but in Moscow in 1877, and it was not particularly successful. The Tchaikovsky music was there, but the choreography was apparently unremarkable. And while it had a few revivals, it really faded away. Tchaikovsky thought that he was a failure at creating music for ballet. Um, moving forward, he died in 1893 after composing The Sleeping Beauty and The Nutcracker. And for a memorial concert, for him, the associate ballet master, Lev Ivanov, created this little um, lovely lyrical one-act ballet about swans by a lakeside to the music for the second act of Swan Lake. It was such a success that the full-length ballet was then commissioned. And the principal ballet master, who is our old friend, Marius Petipa, was tasked with creating the first and the third acts, and the lovely lakeside scene became the second act, and Ivanov created the fourth act in the same lyrical style. Our old friend Tchaikovsky and Lev Ivanov. His other claim to fame was the original choreography for The Nutcracker. Um, so the Swan Lake full length that we know and love was premiered successfully in 1895. Well, this is an image, a drawing from the designs for the old 1877 production. I just think it's very um, atmospheric. This is the original Odette. Pierina Legnani happened to be an Italian dancer. Um, another picture of the same dancer as the Swan Queen. And I will give you a little inside secret. That photo of her was taken with her being held up by a sort of like a doll stand because there was no way with the exposure of photography in those days that she could have held that pose long enough. 
um, swans and the original Prince Siegfried, Pavel Gerdt. Ruben, can you relate? He gets to wear a hat. Totally, yeah. And I wish the revival was to come back so I could wear something like that <laughs> on stage. Especially and, that hat, I think, is magnificent. And it's worth noting that Pavel Gert was 50 when Swan Lake premiered. Well, I still have a chance. <laughs> Another image of some swans. Um, just, it's such an interesting image into what it used to look like. And, of course, you can compare and contrast with the present. So let's fast forward to America, to San Francisco in 1940. Artistic director Willem Christensen believed profoundly that the way to create a legitimate classical ballet company was to give the dancers legitimate classics to dance. Some of you have heard me repeat that because it's one of my favorite things. Um, he created Coppelia, stay tuned in a couple of weeks, um, in 1939 and then he chose to create Swan Lake the next year. He had never seen the full-length Swan Lake. It had never been performed full-length in this country. And he put it together with coaching from members of San Francisco's white Russian community, who, of course, in 1940, could remember seeing performances at the Imperial Russian Theater and told him what it should look like, where the dancers should go, how they should stand. <clears throat> so Willem created what was the first full-length Swan Lake to be seen in America. And this is his brother, Lou Christensen, with the first Odette, Jacqueline Martin, and Lou with the first Odile, Janet Reed. Now there's something funny about that. Odette was danced by one dancer, and Odile was danced by another dancer. And the reason for that was really pretty simple. Those dancers were just growing into the classical style and becoming classical dancers, and they didn't have the stamina. They, neither one of them could have done the whole ballet at that time, 1940. Um, it didn't stay in repertoire for very long. So now we fast forward again to... Um, when artistic director Helgi Thomason arrived and had the same philosophy as Willem Christensen about giving his dancers the classics to perform in order to create a high-quality classical company. And he produced his first full-length ballet for the company in 1988, and that was Swan Lake. And here we have a wonderful image of the, it's one of the iconic images of the ballet, from the 1988 production. And that production served us very well for 21 years, but when it began to show some signs of wear, he created a new production in 2009. And that's the one about which we are going to have conversation. So uh, what I will do is just show us one more image from the 1988 production and highlight the costuming those of you who have any costume history know that this would be placed in the 18th century, right, the 1700s. And the new production, the decision was not. So um, at this point, let's take a little sidestep 
and invite you two to say a few words. Um, I want to start with this whole concept of it's a classic and dancing a classic. Uh, let's start. Sasha, a silly kind of a question, but what does that mean to you to be tasked with dancing in a classic? Well, I completely agree that, um, you know, in order to kind of grow as a classical company, it's so important to do these classical ballets. And I was fortunate enough to have very traditional uh, Vaganova training, Russian training, um, in Washington, D.C. So um, I spent five, six hours a day, every day training for this. So it's very um, rewarding to be able to use that classical training um, on stage and in performance rather than in a classroom setting. Um, it basically is the purest, what I perceive to be the purest form of ballet. Um, you know, technique is very pure. You know, there are just certain epaumas and way to hold your arms um, that aren't particularly free to interpretation. It's um, just uh, maybe could be seen as an old-fashioned, more old-fashioned way of dancing than compared to some of our more contemporary choreographers where arms are a little bit more splayed and uh, exaggerated positions. This is a little bit more restricted. Um, so that's a major part, I would say. Sure. Um, probing a little bit further into your uh, extensive, deeply classical training, um, you came to this company and ha we have seen you in countless roles of all types. How did that prepare you to do the really contemporary things, the William Forsyths and the Liam Scarlets and so on? I really feel that as long as you have a really strong classical base, you can really just grow from that. Um, for example, with William Forsyth, he, he is also based in the classical technique. I, I guess all choreographers really are. Um, but it's all about just extending the line a little further, lifting the leg a little higher, or um, approaching it with more physicality um, instead of um, pure placement, I would say. Mm -hmm. So that it really helped me because it's just an extension of my training, mm -hmm. I feel like. Ruben, I know you may say some of the same things, but your training was, your early training was European. So I have a perception that that maybe puts you closer to the classical tradition, am I right? Um, I would say that um, it's, I, I don't know about closer because a lot of the teachers that came to the States also have that, hi, oh yeah, um, have that uh, influence from way back when that they have brought to all different points of either Europe or, or the States in this case. Um, like Sasha was mentioning before, there is this wonderful school in, in uh, Washington DC where they have brought all of these teachers from the Vaganova school and that's the training they've, they've had, mm -hmm. the pure Vaganova school that they've transplanted here into, uh, into the US. Um, I, my training was a little bit a mix of different, um, different techniques. Mm -hmm. It was a mix of the Vaganova, the Cecchetti, and uh, that developed into what is known as um, Spanish training, or the Maria de Avila, who is my mm -hmm. teacher, original mm -hmm. teacher, who is the 
a mother of Lola de Avila, former director of the, of the ballet school here in San Francisco. Um, the classic is very, it's a very interesting, very complicated and very precise way of placing the body in order to achieve a certain um, specific uh, alignment of your limbs and the core in relation to space. It's, I would say, the most efficient way to place yourself so you have a share amount of weight spread throughout all of the joints in your body so that it's, um, you minimize the, the action, like the, the effect of gravity on, um, on your body. So that's kind of one of the things that I've developed and that I teach to my students is, yes, it's about the, the aesthetic of your body and your lines, but most importantly is a way to place your, uh, the alignment of your body in a, such as an efficiency where um, that weight is completely shared between all the joints. And uh, that definitely for how hard we work and the amount of um, wear and tear that you get through a career will create um, maybe a lengthening of, of that space of time in which you're, um, yeah, in, in which you're active professionally. Another strong element in um, the great full-length classical ballets is storytelling. And so you're required to be an actor in particular ways. Sasha, have you developed a, an affinity for or not um, telling stories, acting as you dance, being absolutely. characters? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the... Even though I haven't had a chance to really um, delve into a full-length ballet yet, um, I think that will be one of the most rewarding parts of it. Um, first of all, I feel that here we're so blessed to have incredible ballerinas and dancers that are um, so gifted in pantomime and expression. Um, so it's so nice to learn from them, just to begin with. But. Um, forgot the question. <laughs> um, do you enjoy storytelling? I do, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I've had the chance to dance Myrta and Giselle. That's right. Um, and I really enjoyed finding my own way of um, developing her as a character. It's only in one act, only the second act, but um, she's a very strong character and um, she can be played many different ways. I've also, in a completely different realm, um, been able to dance um, one of the stepsisters in Chris Wielden's Cinderella. And that was so much fun because it's a comedic ballet and my stepsister was just mean and nasty and so much fun. <laughs> so were you the, the sort of the Edwina, the kind of prissy... Right, the, the more retiring one. That's yes. right. That's right. So that's <laughs> wonderful. Um, Ruben, you did have experience dancing at the uh, English National before you came here, and I remember your, hearing you say that they did so many story ballets there and the classics. Um, how do you like storytelling and doing the dramatic parts? <laughs> Um, storytelling is fun, uh, especially when you don't have to speak. <laughs> so uh, for us dancers, um, we have created, 
or it, there has been created a method to actually be able to tell parts of stories in which you're not telling them through your steps. There is uh, times in ballets where you can dance and the, the audience understands just through the movement and the expression of how specifically you move your arms or your legs, what the message mm -hmm. is. But there is parts where, unfortunately, we can't use our voice to tell you guys what's going on. So what do we have to do? We have to use our body. Um, I come from, as you said, the English National Ballet. I, I danced for four years, and I was just in, I was in the core for the four years and started to, to get few chances there, but I didn't really get to work on all of those things until I got here. But I saw, I saw it a lot. And as a young professional just fresh in a company, what you, um, the only way to, to learn other than somebody mentoring you is to really watch. And um, before this, uh, the wonderful blessing of technology and YouTube and all that stuff, all you had was what you had in front of you if you had a chance to yeah. do that or just get videos from different sources. But that was a great way for me to actually get acquaintance visually because as dancers, the way we best learn is through visual, um, abs mm. absorbing visually. So that was very important. Mm. And even though I didn't really feel like I knew the, the ballets by heart, but I had seen them enough where when I actually came to do them and rehearse them, it came a little bit more natural to me as I started to learn the mime and um, express the story that way. When you've seen, and I know many of you have seen many of the classics, <clears throat> when you see Swan Lake, you will see some very specific storytelling that is in the uh, very stylized gestures that we call mime or pantomime. And uh, in the old, old, old original versions, those mime sequences could go on for minutes and minutes and minutes. And they had vocabulary and would tell an entire history with all of the relatives would have gestures that were associated with them. Um, but we've pared it down quite a bit. But I wonder if, do you know the Odette mime where she's explaining her enchantment? Vaguely. Would you mind, could you demonstrate it? Oh my gosh. Go, Sasha. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll hold your mic. You um, flap your wings. I mean, I hope I do it justice. Okay. I, you can. So, she, so she, the prince comes in and says, what are you doing here? She's turned into a swan by an evil person, an evil magician. And the, um, right, if, if, um, oh, the Hans, prince, the handsome prince, the handsome prince, handsome prince. yeah, the handsome prince <laughs> will swear that he loves her and pledges fidelity, and that the symbol of the, of the fidelity is marriage, then she will be a swan no more. Yes, swan no more. And it's important to know that the syntax are um, probably Latin or a Romance language, not English. So it's the verbs and the, and the predicates and the things are all scrambled when you're yeah. reading the mime. But there's more to the story when they talk about the um, over there is a castle where the prince is and um, the lake 
is formed by her mother's tears. And it goes on and on and on. So what's the, what is the mime that the queen mother comes in and tells the prince? Well, queen mother comes in a very, very special mo moment in the prince's life. Mm -hmm. um, the princess is at, at an age where um, as young adults, adolescents, uh, we become very good at rebelling with everything that comes our way. <laughs> so um, as she's celebrating his 21st birthday, he's getting old enough, uh, she's going to have a party in, in which she has invited, I think it's in this production, is five princesses? Um, yeah. Five? five. Um, the production that <laughs> I knew yeah. <laughs> was six. And that's the libretto, I think the original libretto, I think, says uh, mm -hmm. six princesses. And of course, through this uh, rebelling act of not wanting to conform to, uh, to the norm and to what the mother wants him to do for the, for the castle and for the country, he um, doesn't want to have to do anything with it. So, you know, they have the ball in the third act. In well, which but back up, in the first act, she comes in and she tells him yeah. what's going to happen. Yes. And she, can you show that? You have to marry. And then, of course, he rebels and says, no, mom, I don't want to have to do anything with this. And goes back to the tutor who is accompanying him throughout this party that he's having in the first act with the peasants and with his best friend, Benno. And... Um, and we actually have, we have some, some uh, oh, okay. images Great. we could actually carry the story along here. Perfect. This is the 20, 2009 production. You can see that the, the um, era of the ballet has been changed to the early uh, 19th century, the early 1800s. So the costuming is really very different. You'll also see that we have both peasants and aristocrats who are joining in his garden party. Mm -hmm. um, we have children. There are always children in the big full-length productions. And then the man with the hat over on your left is the tutor, right? Um, and there are the aristocrats dancing. There's the queen mother. And she's quite an imposing. Yeah. And uh, I believe this is the, uh, the bow in which he welcomes her into the, the scene before she has to uh, tell him his message. Mm -hmm. um, so we've jumped Skipped into, the, over. into the, the second act. Um, and you all know the story, or you're going to know the story. Um, here we are in the middle of the forest. We're at a lake, at a lake, and there's this creature. Who is Rothbart? You have danced Rothbart. I have. I have done pretty much all the parts in this ballet. Male parts. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet, even though you never know, right? I would have that possibility if I wanted to. I guess there is a chance for that. Um, yes, and Rothbart is uh, an evil sorcerer, um, and uh, it was interesting to hear Alex talk about it because uh, he claims to he claims that Rothbard is a, some sort of develop, development from an owl, so not quite a swan, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely a creature um, 
very, very well acquainted with black magic, mm -hmm. I believe. And I think that um, actually, not unlike his enchantment of the women, he has this alter persona as an owl. And in some productions, he appears as an owl. And, well, he f yeah. as you can yeah. see, he's definitely flying, flying high. So I would say within the family of birds. I don't know if I would claim an owl to be scary enough as this guy is. Actually, in many mythologies, an owl is a death symbol. Is it? OK. Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. I learned that. Yeah, that explains. Yeah. Very good. Um, this is from a pre the previous 18, or 1988 production. Um, just a, I think you can tell the difference in the, the look of the tutu and the headpiece. And then this is the current production. It's much more um, sort of visually a little bit less traditional. Much more stylized. And much more stylized. And so the, this one leader, um, sometimes she's called a Princess Odette, and then she's the Swan Queen. So I haven't ever figured out that <laughs> genealogy there. Um, very swan bird-like, but sometimes we have to remember that she is part of the time still a woman, but has these very bird-like characteristics. The legend says that they are swans by day and they become women by night. So that's, that's, when, what, that's when Siegfried goes into the lake. It's kind of night, nighttime-ish. And that's how he sees the transformation of one of the swans as a woman uh, within that, um, that group of swans and uh, falls in love with her. I believe that's, that's what happened, if I remember well. Yes. Yes, he does. I, I, that's how it felt, yeah. yeah. I definitely saw a woman, that's for sure. I think the choreography is designed to dramatize love at first sight. Um, here is this, again, this fantastic pose. We are fortunate to have a very big stage and we have a very large company. And we can put 30 swan, swans on the stage, which is pretty impressive. Sasha, when you are being coached, uh, first of all, talk a little bit about that, being coached, to be a swan. You've talked about your impeccable classical technique, but suddenly you have to be a swan as well. What were you told? How was that drawn out of the girls? Um, I, I would say, especially with Swan Lake, a very important aspect of it is the portabra, the carriage of the arms, and how you flap your wings. Um, it's really, um, you know, sometimes it's expressed to feel a resistance which um, helps kind of give that effortless, ethereal quality to the arms, um, as if you're almost moving through water. Um, and another thing that I think is very important is in the second act, when Siegfried comes to the lake with his bow, coming to hunt the swans, showing the fear um, in the way that you hold your head, in the way that you hold your arm, kind of shielding you. Um, I think it's, it's a, such a small movement, but it's such an expressive movement. Mm. Um, so that's um, coached very well and in detail, because all 30 swans have to be exactly the same, and that's a huge challenge, of course. 
<laughs> that is probably, of all the levels of things that you as audience are watching for, you're watching for the storytelling, you're watching the sets, the costumes. But one of the things that is um, a characteristic of a well-performed Swan Lake or other classic ballet with a core is how precise and uniform the corps de ballet is. And I know you will be just over the top impressed with our core. And if, if I might add, sure. um, having worked with some of the ballerinas on this role, um, it's interesting the preparation process that some of them have to go through or want to go through just to improve the quality of that port de bras mm -hmm. aspect. Um, because the, the arms are placed slightly behind, so that <laughs> there is a little bit of a different opening of the chest, the chest that has to be actually developed through stretches mm -hmm. and through uh, just being more aware of how the port de bras is shaping the, the upper part of your body. So oftentimes I would see <laughs> my first partner here in Swan Lake, Vanessa Sahorian, I love you by the way, <laughs> stretching on the bar just before the run through of Swan Lake with both arms on the back and just like almost feeling like she's gonna rip her, her <laughs> chest open and wondering like, wow, this sac like the sacrifices that these ballerinas have to go through in order to achieve this kind of imagery, right? It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Back in a very ancient day, I was part of a small swan corps, but I remember that after our first swan rehearsal, whenever the ballet was revived, we all had sore muscles and we called them the swan muscles those first couple days after our first rehearsals. We were so sore. It's an adjustment, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, here's just more of this beautiful core and its unison movement. Um, this is, it's a very odd little variation. It's absolutely historic. I think every girl in point class starting at about age 13 or 14 learns that variation. And I've not yet been able to really figure out what it expresses in the ballet, but it's there. It has to be there. And you have to love it. And it has to be, of course, danced with incredible precision. I think our dancers right now, there are two casts at least, who do an outstanding job of it. Um, have you ever heard the backstory of why we have these four little little swans? I haven't personally, no. But I do know that they have to be so precise yeah. because as you see, they're so close together mm -hmm. and they're hooking arms. So if the slightest thing goes a little off, then it pulls the whole structure down. And also the legs have to fit perfectly in just the, the, the slot, the, the right slot, otherwise mm -hmm. you can kick somebody. And uh, my girlfriend actually does this role and she's come back home from rehearsals with bruises like all over <laughs> her leg, from knees like digging into her legs. So <laughs> it happens. But anyways, the product that you will see tonight will be wonderful, well rehearsed. Of course, they passed that point of danger. Yeah. And it's great now. Um, this is some of the storytelling. Um, this is the very, very famous pose that it's at the end of the second act. <clears throat> very famous pas de deux. And um, I love this picture. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. <clears throat> 
One of the wonderful things about the old classics and about Petipa's magic is that in every one of his ballets, there would be the occasion, and they would think it up. In this case, it's a birthday ball. It could be a wedding. It could be all sorts of things in which um, characters dance, and they come from all over the world. We always have international dances, and that is a very important part of the training of anybody who's going to do classical ballets. Uh, we have some images from some of the character dances that you'll see in this production. Uh, Sasha, you've performed in a couple of them, haven't you? Or the sure. Yeah, um, I currently uh, do the Russian, one of the Russian princesses, but I've also done the Shardas ah, right. Hungarian. Right, in fact, I think there may be a picture of you in here. And yeah. other. Um, talk about, um, and each of you, I want to say a few words about the training that you may or may not have had to dance these character parts. Sasha? Um, so, uh, yeah, I had character class um, at least once a week for a couple hours a day, and um, it was similar in structure to a ballet class. We would start at the bar, um, but as far as the intention with your movement, it's totally different. It's a little bit more grounded, and, and of course you wear um, character shoes, which are just slightly heeled shoes, maybe an inch and a half. And um, in this production, we have custom-made boots, very comfortable, luckily. Um, and um, it's, uh, I think, Character class really teaches you just the different styles, the different flavors from each different yeah. na national dance. Um, a big part of that, of course, is the steps that you do with your legs, but also the way you hold your upper body, where you hold your arms. Um, so it, each dance that you'll see tonight, each national dance, will have a very distinctive flavor. And that's part of the fun, I think, mm -hmm. of, of the third act. The Russian dance, it was new in this 2009 production. Um, the Chardash is um, a little more familiar, mm -hmm. and it was a different choreography, but um, it, it, he kept it from the, the 1988 production. And this is, you're in that picture somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, right in the middle. Somewhere, yeah. yeah. Um, this is the Chardash, which is uh, the music of Hungary, and then this one is uh, Neapolitan, and that's almost always, and this is traditional, it's a, just for two dancers, and it's quite a showpiece. Right, it um, reminds me of kind of Tarantella yeah, vibe, yeah. very fun. Ruben, what training did you have in character dance? And how I actually have you... didn't have a formal training in character dance, but I came from a, a very flavorful culture, that's Spain. And um, I grew up watching all the flam flamenco dances, and I actually loved it. I wish I would have done a little bit more of that. Um, uh, while I was on the last stretch of my career, I had some um, decided to actually uh, jump in and take a few classes of, of that just because I loved it. But it does, it does give you an awareness of um, the mobility of, especially as Sasha mentioned, the upper part of your body, and it gives a different character and flavor to, um, to the movement. Uh, that also helps a lot 
I have to say, for the classical uh, ballet training because it really establishes the angles in which your shoulders move and how they're placed in space, giving them that um, special character to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so in flamenco, then, there is, there is a lot of, of that uh, characterization and definition of how the angle of the, of the upper part of the body moves. So I, from that, I didn't really have much problem working on um, dances like the Russian mm -hmm. dance or Hungarian dance. I think that was very beneficial and really allowed me to, to have an easier time understanding the, the each, each of the styles flavor. But um, I think it's, it's important because even though classical ballet also is defined by its specific um, ang angles which should be like second nature to us dancers, uh, I think it's through the years, I think it's been lost a little bit. And, uh, and that's the good thing about the Russians, by the way, that they're very good about maintaining that purity of angles that make the dance have the volume that it has. It's no longer flat, kind of, uh, you know, just one-dimensional or two-dimensional dancing, but becomes, makes it into that three-dimensional that gives that nice volume to the dancer and the dance. Uh -huh. I th it's probably worth mentioning that other classics that we're familiar with and that have that our dancers have had to work on include Ramonda, the Ramonda uh, third act, I think, that we did last season, maybe. Two, a couple seasons. Couple seasons, seasons yeah. um, but there's a huge ensemble of classical dancers and then a huge ensemble of character dancers. And it's just stunning to watch the differences in the look and the feel. And then coming up in another couple of weeks, Coppelia is famous for the mazurka and the chardash in the first act. And so we've got volumes of our dancers working on those in the studio right now. Yeah, that'll be a fun production, I think. Yeah. Um, then, of course, the drama continues, and we have, there is Rothbart, I say loosely disguised as a human. <laughs> um, Nicely put. Yeah, with um, his daughter, Odile, who, as the story goes, she's impersonating Odette in order to um, seduce, deceive, seduce the prince. deceive um, Siegfried. And it's always interesting to me, of course, if she's played by the same dancer, there's some continuity to that, but her actions are, I've never been able to reconcile myself to Siegfried being that dumb. That, that's, how, that's how smart Bon Rothbard is. Uh, Let me tell oh, you that. Okay, I get it. Um, Good grief, I just realized our time is almost past. And look who that is. This is Ruben as Prince Siegfried in the famous Black Swan Pas de Deux uh, variation. Um, the famous that's moment. That's not me. In which, no, mm -hmm. that's, uh, in which Odile has succeeded and he pledges to her. And then of course we're back at the lakeside and you'll notice I'm hurrying because I just realized we've run out of time. Um, there we go. One of my favorite images, and as you all know, this is a tragedy, and in a tragedy, the lead characters die, and this is the moment in which Odette hurls herself off the cliff, 
but the moment when trans transformation happens. Very dramatic. It is. Um, if there's anyone who's really close to the center aisle and who can ask a question that has a less than one minute answer, <laughs> this is your. You moment. have to fly to the <laughs> yes. mic. Um, oh, somebody is running. Okay, Very this good. is you. You, you're the winner. You get you get the question, and it's half, going to have to be a short answer. Okay, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, besides actually dancing and all. What kind of training do you do for your muscles and um, also just to lessen the amount of soreness that you have from dancing? Either of you. You Short are the answer. active dancer. I think you should speak. Sure. Uh, I think everybody has their own regimen that kind of works for them. Um, I like to do Pilates um, as well as just kind of stretching. <laughs> Um, that's really dancing keeps you in the best shape for dancing. There's no way to get in shape for dancing unless you're dancing, and that's kind of how it is. But um, I think uh, also gyrotonic, it's like a, an exercise that involves fluid movement. It's nice for the body, and um, that's what I like to do, and I know a lot of dancers um, also do that as well. Thank you. I would just I'll add that um, the ballet technique class is designed to warm up and tone every single muscle in the body. And so if you are taking what we call class daily, you are going to put your body in a pretty good shape. But of course you do these extra things to, to supplement. Um, we sorry, we didn't have more time for questions, have arrived at the end of our time. Before we actually adjourn, I do need to remind you, if you do have a ticket for this evening, you can go out the side and down to the lobby. If you don't have a ticket, you need to enter out this, or exit out this way, and you can make your way back outside. <clears throat> and you might try your luck at going to the box office if you want to catch this evening's performance. I want to thank Sasha so much for taking the time this evening. Thank you, thank you Ruben, for thank all you your so much. experience. Pleasure. And enjoy this evening's performance. Enjoy. Enjoy.